seasons of, of need, but at some point we all experience discomfort with individuals having too much of what they did not work for. We believe that a, that a rightly ordered world rewards those that have had the inner ability and competencies and intellect to become deserving of what they have. That is the game that we play, that we find ourselves in, even if it kind of sounds crude to state we believe earning is the righteous path to having. And when we flip that around, if we're playing by those rules, and the vast majority of us are playing by those rules, we realize that we're instilling within us the sense that to have is to have earned. If earning is the righteous path to having and we are living righteously, then having is having earned what we have. To have is to have purchased with our own sweat, blood, and tears. Respect for that belief, in fact, is what keeps our city from devolving into anarchy. And this sense that to have is to have earned goes well beyond the home that we've bought or the retirement fund that we've saved or the clothes that we've purchased. This, this bleeds into every endeavor, even that of the church that we've planted. In a world driven by what we can earn and what we can achieve, it's very easy to lose sight of the givenness of things. That what we have, ultimately, we have not earned nor purchased, and what we have is not what we deserve. Rather, ultimately, what we have has been graciously given. And it's in believing in the givenness of our lives that we find the key to gratitude. Let's read our passage for this morning. If you've got a Bible there, please turn to Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 15 down to verse 21. And we're going to look at some other passages in Scripture as well. We're going to base ourselves in this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 down to verse 21. And it reads like this, verse 15 of Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the, name, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray before we look at these verses. God, we thank you for your word. God, we bring ourselves right now, we bring it ourselves under your word. God, I, I, we thank you that your word speaks with authority into our lives. I pray that we will seek to submit to your word this morning. God, I pray that you will bring hope and you will bring healing. And God, you will uh, lead us on a path of greater Christ-likeness, God. So God, we invite you into this this morning, God. We are solely dependent on you and your spirit moving and working in our lives. We cannot create this thing. We cannot manipulate this thing. God, we need your spirit to move if we're going to grow in our walk with you, God. So do that today, I pray in your name. Amen. 
The letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Ephesus. Paul had had, had really strong relational ties with this church due to the fact that he'd spent three years living with the church in Ephesus, teaching and raising up leaders within the church. But now, Paul is somewhere else. Paul now, he is imprisoned. He is in prison in Rome, and he's writing back to the church in Ephesus. And the way that he, he structures his letter is first to remind his readers and to us of the gospel of grace by which we've been saved. That's what, that, that's what we get in chapter 2. The, the, the famous passage there reads like this, chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, two great words, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul reminds us of what God has done for us in Christ through the gospel, that we were dead in our sins, but God, we are now alive in Christ. And then when we get to chapter 4, Paul, this is how he structured the letter, and when we get to chapter 4, Paul begins to answer a question. So then, how shall we live? If we have been made alive in Christ, so then, how shall we live? In chapter 4, verse 1, referencing his own imprisonment, Paul writes, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the calling we have received is a call that has raised the dead to life. In this, this verse, to walk literally means to, to live. And then when we get to chapter 5, verse 15, the passage that we read through a few moments ago, Paul is, is summarizing what he has already written as to what it would mean to live this new life raised from the dead. Verse 15, in summary, reads... Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, which again literally means look carefully then how you live. Paul is saying, live an examined life. Don't just, don't just inhale in your subconscious societal norms. Don't, don't just be an imitator of those around you that perceive the workings of the world to be in a particular way. Why? This need for an examined life Verse 16, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, because the days are evil. Paul knew the church in Ephesus lived in an urban center, just as we do, and that there would be, in Chicago as there are everywhere, influences and, and, and pressures, systemic injustices and ways of ordering society, seeking to conform how we walk and how we think and how we live that are to our detriment and are to the detriment of others. This past Monday, as we acknowledged and remembered the life and the work of Dr. Martin Luther King, his life isn't just a reminder of what has been accomplished since the years of slavery and Jim Crow in the U.S., but what also is still to be accomplished. Martin Luther King Day is a reminder that it takes work 
and it takes intentionality to treat the other, whoever they may be, with worth and with dignity. And so we continue the need to live an examined life, asking how so shall we live, examining the, the sin and the, the prejudice and the treatment of others that flows from our hearts internally, but also recognizing the need to be on alert when we are being conditioned externally to see others as less than they are, whether due to the color of their skin or due to them being from another culture or country. And we can be quick when we read Paul's words, the days are evil, to only think of some of the most memorable or shameful examples of humanity enacting evil. But in Romans chapter 1, if you remember back a number of years ago when we studied through the book of Romans, in Romans 1, we read this stark depiction of humanity's rebellion from God. And it's easy to, to, to skim and miss this, but, but listen as I read and listen to what takes center stage in Romans chapter 1. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all, although they, that is us, knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. In Romans 1, Paul depicts humanity's rebellion from God as an act of ingratitude. It is ingratitude that Paul points to as deathly serious. Then Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, speaking of the new life that we have been raised to in Christ, he says, therefore, do not be foolish, do not return to foolishness, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that's what we, week on week, here in Park Rogers Park are seeking to do and to be, to be a people, to be a community, to be a family on Sundays and in small groups and through our relationships here together, we're seeking to learn and know and live in light of the will of God for our lives. Then in verse 18, Paul gets more specific in this short summary as to what this kind of life will look like. This is what he says in verse 18. On one hand, he says, don't be getting drunk with wine, don't do that, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the same way that drunkenness alters how you walk and how you think and how you speak, in the same way that it's easy to spot somebody that's drunk, Paul is saying to live our lives under the influence not of alcohol, but of the Holy Spirit. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, this life of Holy Spirit influence will, influence will be evident, not by our stumbling, not by our slurred speech, but in three specific ways. Three ways the work of the Holy Spirit becomes evident in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Firstly, the work of the Holy Spirit will be evident in our lives by our singing. That's verses 18 and verse 19. Paul says the result of the Holy Spirit will be a joy that will be expressed by a making of melodies in our heart to the Lord, which will result in the actual, the actual raising of our voices in song. So church, do not quench the Holy Spirit in your life by not singing. Come to sing on a Sunday morning. Thirdly, Ephesians 5, 21 says, being filled with the Holy Spirit will result in a humility. 
causing us to be willing. This is hard, causing us to be willing to submit to one another and to honor and put the needs and the perspectives of others before our own. Three ways the work of the Holy Spirit becomes evident in our lives. First, joy. Third, humility. And secondly, sandwiched between our joy and our humility in verse 20 is to be our gratitude. And firstly, can I just point out, isn't this depiction of the kind of person, isn't this depiction, a depiction of the kind of person that we, we most deeply want to be? You know, we, we can project a particular identity or, or particular posture to the world for a lot of different reasons. Maybe we've, we've been hurt Maybe we want to protect ourselves. Maybe we've had our hopes crushed in the past. Maybe we've seen awful things occur. Maybe we know this world is not safe. And so some of us have built around ourselves a shell of protection, posturing ourselves as more sad than joyful, more arrogant than humble, more entitled than grateful. And yet I truly believe that in our most tender awareness of what our souls long for, I believe it's joy and humility and gratitude to be able to live like a child again with an openness to see the goodness in our world, to be able to see the goodness in others that maybe we've closed ourselves off from due to our own cynicism. Rogers Park, doesn't Paul offer a beautiful depiction of a life that's well-lived, <laughs> of a life that is joyful and humble and grateful? And what an incredible truth to consider that when we put our faith in Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is leading us down that very path of becoming. He's pulling back and off that hard shell of hardness that we're hiding in to reveal us as sons and daughters of God who are joyful and humble and grateful. Verse 18 reads, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Then, verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in reading this, the first thing that should maybe strike us and we should maybe be reminded of is where Paul is. Paul is in prison. Paul has spent months and months in custody. He's been beaten and he's been flogged and he's been shipwrecked. And now he is writing to his friends in Ephesus telling him to give thanks always and to give thanks for everything. Always. For everything. RP, this, this is no light expectation. And it, it's tempting to, to consider at this point all the reasons why this seems highly unrealistic. Doesn't God know what we're facing? Doesn't God know our losses? Does not God know our, our struggles? Does he not know our experiences? Does he not know what we don't have? How can we be thankful always and for everything? You know, we can be quick to believe 
that our individual circumstances are the primary factor that will determine our ability to be grateful or not. But I don't think that goes deep enough in acknowledging what under the surface I think we all know to be true. I think that we know that in Paul's depiction of someone that is joyful and someone that is humble and someone that is grateful, I think we know it bears little relevancy whether that someone has lived an easy life. In fact, in my experience, most likely this is a depiction of someone who hasn't. Paul himself being a testament to this. RP circumstantial control or circumstantial change will not guarantee for you a life that you're going to be grateful for. And gratitude that is the result of circumstantial control or circumstantial change is not the kind of everywhere and always gratitude that Paul is saying will become in you through the work of the Holy Spirit. The research that I mentioned earlier discovered that the two greatest barriers to gratitude are not circumstances, but these two things. Number one, envy. Number two, materialism. Envy, the wanting of what others have. Two, materialism, which makes sense of the envy. Materialism being the belief that man shall live by bread alone. Materialism is believing possessions will solve a need in the human heart that possessions cannot solve. And so what is this gratitude that Paul is speaking of if it is not the result of changing circumstances and it is able to overcome the envy that is often existing in our own hearts as well as overcoming the materialism that pervades our culture? What is this gratitude that Paul is speaking of? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul again, he's writing to the church in another place. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And the church, church has formed different factions around different favorite church leaders. And, and Paul is very astute because he recognizes what's going on here is that those in the church are focusing on the wrong things. The, the church is obsessing over, over, over giftedness and ability and eloquence and wisdom, and they're pitting the leaders against one another. But Paul, even more astutely, knows that what is driving the church at a deeper level is the desire to attain a particular pursuit. In some way, the church felt that if they aligned themselves behind their favorite leader, they would possess some kind of a claim for themselves. They were very likely hoping that what these leaders possessed would rub off on them. So Paul, so Paul writes, and this is incredible what he writes. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you're Christ's and Christ is God's. Did you catch that? Firstly, Paul is saying, don't find your boast in the leader that you're following. Each of them, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, each of them has been given to you for your benefit. Each of them are yours. But after listing the leaders, Paul, he, he doesn't stop. He just keeps listing more things. He keeps the list going. He says, and not just them, but do you know, don't you know that the whole world is yours? Including life and death and the present and the future, it's all yours. 
whatever you're, whatever you're seeking to possess, everything is already yours. And this isn't the only time we find this way of speaking in Scripture. Listen to these incredible, incredible words. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul is introducing himself and in the work of the apostle, apostles, he writes, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known. We are dying, yet we live, as punished, and yet we are not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Do you know, don't you know, that the whole world is yours? What, what does this mean in the, the hardest of circumstances? What does this mean if you're, you're in prison? What does it mean if you're here today and you, you don't have a home? Paul is trying to find words to express what we've been given in Christ. He's just trying to find words. Paul says this the other way around when he says he considers everything that he has as a loss that he may gain Christ. There is a value system that Paul is aware of that makes all that we have or all that we do not have fade in comparison when we hold up the beauty and the worth of Christ. And one of the challenges in the Christian life is receiving all of the benefits that Christ offers to us, forgiveness of sins, an eternal reward, an unshakable hope, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, a king who reigns for our good. The challenge is to receive all of the benefits of Christ without taking our eyes off him. He is our forgiveness of sins. He is our eternal reward. He is our unshakable hope. He is our friend and he is our king. And in in some hard-to-put-into-words kind of way, when we have Christ, either the world fades in value and worth to such a degree in contrast to him that he becomes our whole world. Or we realize that when we hide our lives in Christ, when we go to that place, when when we rest in him, when we find our hope in him, when we trust in him with the little that we have or the plenty that we have and that he has given us, we realize that no matter what our current circumstances, we are co-heirs with Christ. And all that is Christ's, hear this RP, unknown maybe to the world, maybe even unknown to you, all that is Christ's is one day going to be revealed as ours. Or the whole world is ours as in there is no position in it, there is no place in this world, there is no narrative that we can live in this world, no story that's too difficult, no loss that's too great, whether we are a follower of Christ with a home that's rubble or a follower of Christ in a prison in North Korea, this world becomes ours when we realize every inch of it, the gospel transforms into a conduit for God's grace in our lives. We are conditioned to think that what we have, we must earn. We believe earning is the righteous path to having. And in a world driven by what we can earn and what we can achieve, it's very easy to lose sight of the givenness of God's grace. That what we have in Christ, we have not earned, and we need not earn. That what we have in Christ, we have not purchased, 
and we need not purchase. And what we have in Christ is yet not what we deserve. Rather, ultimately, all that we have in life and in the gospel has been graciously given. So that we all, so that we are able to live like children again, with an openness to see the goodness in our world, to see the goodness in others, to be able to trust in the goodness of God's plan for our lives and in the goodness of the gospel. In Christ, our lives are destined to result in a positive outcome that is due to no credit of our own. And what an incredible, incredible truth to consider that when we put our faith in Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, if you want to live aligned with the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life is leading you down the path, the very path of becoming. He's pulling back that hard shell that we're hiding behind to reveal us as sons and daughters of God who are always and in everything joyful, humble, and grateful. Let's pray. God, we come before you, God, on this day, and it is 11 years since this church was planted, but it's been 11 years for every person here too, of journeying, of walking through life, and things have happened, things that have been hard, things that have hurt us, and it could be so easy to build a shell around our hearts and our lives, and we want to be soft, and we want to be tender, and we're not sure if it's going to hurt if we do that, or we're going to get hurt if we do that. God, I thank you that in the gospel you give us the ability to know that you're with us, that you're for us, that you have a path led out ahead of us, and you desire through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we would be people who are joyful and kind and loving and tender and grateful. So God, would you make us those kind of people, God, that this neighborhood, that this city, this world would take notice. What do they have? What's making them always joyful? What's making them in everything grateful? God, may the world know and may they see that we're pointing and looking to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. And I know it's not much, but I've nothing else fit for a king.